Hey. Nice to see you all. All right. I sound loud. I think that'll work. Well, every time my family flies, we call the airline and we tell them we have a peanut allergy because they have a protocol. Isaac has peanut allergies. What they do is they, they make sure they scrub down the plane before we board, you know, presumably Lysoling the tray tables and things like that. Uh, and the reason is because we're going to enter into a cabin and we need that not to be locked in there with any traces of peanut because they understand that the peanut allergy is often fatal. And so while it is probably impossible to get rid of every minute trace of peanut dust, and in fact, if Isaac were to touch a little bit or step on a peanut, the worst that would probably happen is he would just get maybe a little rash. But we take those precautions, and they take those precautions at the airline because so much is at stake. It's a matter of life and death, right? And so we want to make sure that we separate Isaac from the peanut. And so we begin at the, the dust level, the touch level, so that we don't end up at the mouth level. And the best way to do that is simply to purge as much as we can from it before entering into the plane. And so the extra precaution we take there is a little bit of insurance that something bad doesn't happen, and it's really not that much to do in order to preserve our son's life and to keep that dangerous element from getting into him. Well, I want to know, what, what are you doing to keep harmful influences from getting inside you? What are you coming into contact with? The Church of Pergamum, which is our third church we're looking at in the Revitalized series, they had some people who were not careful in keeping harmful influences from getting into the church. Now, these were people who were likely not trying to deceive the church. They seemed to be potentially sincere. But what it began with was a subtle compromise. A subtle compromise with an ungodly culture. And before they knew it, that ungodly culture began to develop in the church. Part of the reason for it was that these compromisers really believed that what they were doing was acceptable. It was fine and well for Christianity. They weren't arguing for a rejection of the gospel or anything scandalous like that. They were, they were simply promoting closer relationships with an idolatrous culture closer than what is proper for people who are called to be the light of the world, representatives of Jesus Christ. So how close are your relationships with an ungodly culture? Moreover, how close are you getting to harmful influences? So Pergamum, which just sounds like a drug, right? Like Percocet, take two doses of Pergamum every day. Pergamum was a center for both Roman government and pagan culture. It was the capital of the whole area for emperor worship, okay? 
And this is why Jesus calls the city Satan's throne. Um, I'm sorry, I was going to read the text. <laughs> that would probably be helpful. Let's look at it. It's fairly brief, five verses. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, you see the same format as the other two letters. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so Satan's throne. Uh, in a kind of a, a saturated culture with pagan influences, and the popular things there were not Jesus, okay? I can tell you that much. To hear Jesus, you'd have to go into a little house church, to a church like the church of Pergamum. Uh, so the popular, so the, 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 the culture had this strong expectation of emperor worship, of this false religion. And so with that being the expectations, Christians had to discern this and resist it. And they did fairly well. I mean, Antipas went to the grave resisting this, and they continued to hold fast their faith even after that uh, tragedy, that consequence of their faith. But now there are some in the church who are not holding fast the name of Jesus. Instead, they are holding on to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, Pastor Jen explained the Nicolaitans a bit last time. Baal, the teaching of Balaam is kind of part and parcel with this. The idea of the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans was that they caused Christians to compromise. And fairly subtly. And Jesus points out two particular examples of compromise in verse 14, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Now, generally speaking, we can look at this problem as if it's a marketplace. A market, a literal physical one that offers good things and bad things. That was what would have been in Pergamum. You go to buy your groceries at the market. But a marketplace in general is a place of variety. And so whether it's a physical one in the first century or a cyber one, the internet, in the 21st century, everyone goes to the marketplace. But the Christian in particular has the additional challenge and responsibility of avoiding things that can corrupt avoiding bad things, and avoiding things that not only corrupt the individual Christian, but can spread to the church and affect the church to which that Christian belongs. And that's what's going on here. So let's look at the first example that Jesus cites, the practice of eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. It might not be something you resonate with, but there's a principle at work here. So everyone goes to the marketplace in Pergamum, 
to buy food, but some of that food has been sacrificed to idols. And the question for the Christian in the marketplace is this, is it okay for me to buy this food that was used in this pagan ritual and sacrificed to an idol? Well, there are two answers to that question. One answer is for you, and one answer is for the church to which you belong. And Paul answers both of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look a little bit at that because he addresses it very specifically. And so we can track with his knowledge about this particular example to get at the principle that applies to us. He says this about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Okay. I'm tracking with you so far, Paul. In other words, the reality of the situation is that the food wasn't really offered to another God because there is no other God. The food itself, then, is acceptable. It was created by a good God and is good to eat. So eat it with a clear conscience as far as you are concerned. But here's where the second answer comes. Listen to Paul, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some have been used... Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul is saying it's not just you that's affected by this decision. It's those who are watching you. So if you can eat this food knowing that it won't weaken your devotion to Jesus in some way, then it might be okay. But, verse 9, be careful, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, someone who may have used to sacrifice to idols before they were a Christian, might be triggered by seeing you buy food offered to idols because to them you represent acceptable, mature Christianity. But they might follow in your footsteps. The difference for them is that association with idols rekindles all the old things they liked about their former idolatry. And the result is their devotion to Christ is weakened. Paul goes on to explain verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ has died. As Christians, we need to think about how people around us see what we do. You parents know this full well. Our kids imitate us. So, we Christians are forbidden from causing another brother or sister in Christ to sin or stumble. Stumble is the term that both Paul and John use. So in verse 14 in our passage in Revelation, John cites Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was a pagan prophet. You can read about in the book of Numbers. And he put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. A stumbling block is something you do that causes someone else to sin. And that's what seems to be at work here with those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They went into the marketplace and over time, they gradually got closer and closer to sinful influences, and not just with their grocery shopping, but sexual immorality as well. Now, we get close to sexual immorality in our culture all the time. 
the assumptions alone about sex in our culture, in advertising and entertainment, are rarely based on what is pleasing to God. But they're all around us and can be hard to avoid. And I'll give you an example from this past week. So remember, the internet is our marketplace. It's one of our marketplaces, a very prominent one. And so we enter at our own risk because immorality is just a click away. And you can very easily, even unknowingly, make a wrong turn in the marketplace. So just this week, I went to what I thought would be a harmless site. You know where this is going. I typed it in and ended up at the front door of a website for people over 18. Now, thankfully, they had a, a warning you had to buy, click on to enter the site. But the point is this. I was completely surprised having gone typed this thing in with a clear conscience. But what about the things that don't take us by surprise? Those cozy relationships that could be leading somewhere unhelpful. Well, years ago, I had a friend who had a peanut allergy, like my son. And she, her dad loved boiled peanuts. And for his birthday, she thought, I'm going to boil him some peanuts, and it should be fine because I'm not going to eat them. But the thing about boiling peanuts that she didn't anticipate was that boiling creates steam, and steam that is infused with peanut. And her throat started to constrict, and she had difficulty breathing, and had to use her EpiPen, you know, that emergency needle that people with peanut allergies have to carry. Well, peanut-infused steam, at least the peanut part, is invisible, but it's deadly. What are the things that we are breathing in without knowing how harmful they really are? So if you were to do an audit of, your, of what you see and hear and do during the week, what would you discover about what it's doing to your faith, your testimony to Jesus? Because your purpose in life is to testify to Jesus with all of your life, and there's no area that is off limits to him, and it is his name that you must hold fast. But the more that we hold on to ideas and desires that are not faithful to Christ, the weaker our hold on Christ becomes. So are you holding fast to Jesus when you enter the marketplace? Are you rooted in Christ when you start reading your social media feed? When you engage people online in conversation, are you allowing ungodly anger into your heart, or are you bringing the love of Jesus into the conversation? It has everything to do with what you're holding most tightly when you go into the marketplace. Or do you join your meetings at work and see yourself as the light of the world representing your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to people who are at the mercy of a pagan marketplace? Or do you just show up without remembering who you represent and then proceed to get irritated with your coworkers? When you're with your friends, is there a difference between what you hold most dear and what they do? And if so, does that difference show up in your speech. We should understand that the church at Pergamum was a pretty strong church. They survived at least one martyrdom. 
And yet, despite this, the church was committed to Jesus' name and held fast, despite the death of Antipas. But big problems start small. And in this case, the problem was started by some in the church who started adding a little more to their life from the culture by subtracting from Jesus. It's kind of hard to be committed in two different directions. And it started to affect the church. Sometime back, I was asked by an old friend to do her premarital counseling, and I'd never met her fiancé, so we had a get-to-know-you meeting, and it soon became clear that this couple was living together and sleeping together, and premarital sex is one form of sexual immorality. And it is one of the best examples I can think that is prevalent in a non-Christian marketplace where Christians go for ideas. And many come away holding this idea that it is somehow acceptable to sin in this way. So I asked this couple if they knew what God thought of their premarital sex. And they admitted that they felt guilty. They knew it was a sin. But the reasons for engaging it were so attractive to them that they had indulged it. It made financial sense. And their love for each other and their attraction to one another and their biological desires seemed to stack the deck in favor of this sin. And so they'd gone outside of the boundaries of God in the marketplace and considered this attractive idea and finally held on to this popular teaching from the marketplace. And what Jesus condemns in the church at Pergamum was likely more subtle than premarital sex in the church. The point is this. If you're not holding fast to Jesus, 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 you will be more likely to start grasping other things. So how do we hold fast to Jesus? Well, first we need to repent. Verse 16. Repent of not giving Jesus final authority in all aspects of your life. Repent of allowing ungodly attractions in the marketplace to weaken your commitment to Jesus. Repent because if you don't, Jesus will war against those who compromise their faith, verse 16, with the sword of his mouth, which is a metaphor for judgment. This isn't the first time we see the sword of Jesus' mouth in the book of Revelation. Jesus is giving the church a warning here. The church of Pergamum is not as bad as Ephesus, but not as good as Smyrna. And this church and the next two have kind of a mixed condition. There's time to repent. And the same is true for us. There's time to repent of any sin that you've been indulging. There's time to rethink how close you're getting to something that may compromise your faith in Jesus. And there's time to keep any corrupting influences from then developing here at TGC. And whenever we turn away from something sinful, we must turn to what is true and good, that which strengthens our faith in Jesus and strengthens our testimony before others. Simply put, the whole world is polluted by sin, but the whole world is redeemable. What do I mean? Well, God is a good creator, and he's given us all kinds of things that 
are good and satisfying, like food and knowledge and jellyfish and art, physical in abilities and marital intimacy. And for everything the Lord has given us, we've abused or corrupted it because we are sinners. And so we must learn to redeem and preserve what is good and in, in these things and then refrain from corrupting them. We must walk through our marketplaces with discernment and take what is good and leave what is bad. We can buy food and eat it with grateful hearts, but we shouldn't waste food or become gluttons. We can enjoy the gift of sex within marriage, but not before marriage or in any selfish way. We should appreciate the beauty in nature and the arts without making it an idol. So during COVID, we've seen how restaurants and so forth have been circulating the air, flushing out the bad and pumping in good air to keep it safe from pathogens or bacteria or whatever it is. We need to do that with our minds. We need to renew our minds so that the, the harmful air is diminished and flushed out always pumping in the clean, healthy air of the Word of God. So the person who's feeding idolatry, some unhealthy pursuit, must stop feeding it and let it air out. Let the fresh air of the Word replace it. And then we can breathe in, not what is harmful, but what is helpful, healthy, and pleasing to God. And that's how the church keeps its witness as a city on a hill, the light of the world. And the church made up of people who hold fast the word of God will not deny their faith in Jesus. And it is they who will receive eternal life. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit always speaks the words of God because he exalts Jesus. Hear the word of God and breathe that in. Because, that is what you, because this is what you will receive if you are faithful to Jesus. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let me explain these two obscure references and then close. Hidden manna which I think is meant to remind us of God's gracious provision of his, to his children in the wilderness, manna being that food that he provided from heaven, seems to mean the eternal fellowship with God for which we're destined. That kind of mysteriously hidden, yet to be revealed, yet to be consummated reality we're looking forward to, that divine fellowship. The white stone could mean a couple of things, but they're both good. A white stone was used in the Roman world in the courts of law as a vote of acquittal. It determined that you are not guilty. The black stone meant you were guilty. So to get the white stone meant you were acquitted. Well, that's what we've been given. We've been given a white stone of acquittal. Because of Jesus, the wrath of God for sin fell on him. And those of us who trust in Jesus are acquitted. We're pardoned. We're declared not guilty. 
A white stone was also given out as an invitation to an event. Will you come to my bridal shower? Give them a white stone. Well, we've also been invited to an event. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Part of that etern- the inauguration of the eternal communion we're going to experience with Jesus, where it's a feast, a celebration. We're called the Bride of Christ, and that's like a wedding supper where we're reunited with our Creator without sin for that perfect fellowship, physically in glorified bodies for eternity. And that's why we repent and read the word for the renewal of our minds, because we await a glorious future with our Lord and Savior, to whom we testify as a church. Until then, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this taste of heaven to which we look forward, that glorious sharing in your presence where sin is a memory no longer affecting us, no longer hindering our relationship with you or separating us from you. Thank you for that white stone, that declaration of not guilty. Father, may we not be influenced by a culture that doesn't know you, but rather may we illumine the culture with the knowledge of God that we've been given. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.